Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. The country has changed so much in such a short period of time that when you layer that cultural change on top of that, you know, socioeconomic disruption on top of all of the political dysfunction, I think it sort of builds to a powder keg. And we knew that it was going to explode sooner or later. We just didn't know that Donald Trump was going to be the one to light the match. Hello, welcome to The Clown Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Tim Alberta, who's a chief political correspondent at Politico Magazine and author of the new book, American Carnage, which is an unbelievably deeply reported, deeply sourced look at the Republican Party's elites processing what their party's become in real time over the past 10 years. At the core of this book is this fight over what the Republican Party really is and what it should be. Is it a party of conservatism, particularly Washington, D.C. conservatism, low taxes, deregulation, something, something, Koch brothers or Milton Friedman? Or is it a party of white identity politics? Is it a party about the fact that this country has been a white Christian country in terms of its political majority for a long time? That is changing. And that change come, brings with it dislocation and cultural dislocation. And those people want a party that is going to protect their interests and want a party that is going to fight for them and fight to make that change not happen. So this book, I think, is interesting, particularly in the context of the past couple of episodes uh, with George Will, who I think of as representing that conservative, that D.C. conservatism tradition, but he's no longer Republican, with Rod Dreher, who I think speaks in many ways for that Christian right backlash and that feeling of the culture turning on you. But what Alberta has that basically nobody else does is what did all these guys think while it was going on and how did they – what choices did they make that either enabled it and why did they make the choices they did ultimately with Donald Trump, who, as you'll hear, a lot of his key allies today knew exactly what he was when he was coming up and they were loathed it. They were disgusted by it. What happened psychologically in that party? What happened professionally and opportunistically in that party that they all got on board or so many of them at least got on board? As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Tim Alberta. Tim Alberta, welcome to the podcast. Ezra, thanks a lot for having me, man. I'm a big fan of yours. Thank you. I appreciate it. So we're going to start where we are now. So you released your book this week, 
Um, you didn't actually. We're actually talking before the official release date, but you've already got a bunch of senior Republicans at each other's throats. Talk me through a little bit about the reaction to the book among the people in the book. Sure. Yeah, it's been a pretty crazy 48 hours here. Uh, we released the first excerpt in Politico magazine Wednesday, and uh, and that excerpt captured the weekend of the Access Hollywood bombshell dropping on the Trump campaign. And we had all kinds of fun and incredible revelatory details about the you know what was happening inside of Trump Tower, sort of a fly on the wall perspective. Uh, everyone from you know Chris Christie to Reince Priebus to Paul Ryan and how they're all processing this as they clearly at the time believed that Trump's candidacy was going down in flames. And then yesterday, uh, the Washington Post uh, printed a story that included any number of uh, additional anecdotes, colorful anecdotes from basically a a who's who of powerful, influential Republican. No, you're, you're, you're giving me the book promo version of this. They, they published a thing in which Paul Ryan shits on Donald Trump. OK, good. We can just cut to the chase. Yeah. <laughs> let's, what, let's go to what, what's going on here. Yeah. Look, so yeah, Paul Ryan, uh, you know, blissfully in retirement, decided that it was time to uh, open a can of whoop ass on Donald Trump. And that did not go over well with the president. Didn't go over well with a lot of people, in fact, because obviously, the you know, a lot of folks hear that and they think, well, where was this guy for the last two years? Why, why didn't he feel compelled to ever speak out and say anything while Ryan was still the speaker? Um, so that was sort of the headliner. But but the, the Post story also included a lot of other, you know, anecdotes and a lot of quotes from Republicans who have pledged undying, unflinching uh, allegiance to Trump who were once not so loyal. Yeah, you have a ton. I will say that for, for people listening along, like if you want to hear about how the Republican Party was processing itself in real time over the past 10-ish years, like there's nothing better than this book. You you really, you really get inside people's heads. But I, I want to focus in on that question because the pattern of the Republican Party, a pattern that I think you more than anyone else in your pieces with John Boehner, um, as he retired, with Paul Ryan before you were the pe- person who wrote the big piece breaking the news that Paul Ryan was thinking of and then ultimately did retire – there is this continuous pattern here of Republican Party politicians retiring and then, as you say, in their blissful retirement saying, oh, yeah, that party I was running, it's full of racists and it um, elected an orange monster and uh, I'm very disappointed in it. And you're like, well, what what was your what was your role? Like, why were... Your book is about how they made their peace with it. So why did these people make their peace with something they knew at the time in an ongoing way? to be wrong and that they're now trying to erase some of the stain of it from their own records? It's a great question. And it's in many ways, it's a simple question with a simple answer. Uh, Ezra, I draw a lot of my experience from covering Congress. And one of the first rules I learned in covering Congress is that in politics, self-preservation is the name of the game. These folks, so many of them, uh, and and I, do, I don't mean to sound malicious or cruel here, but it's just a fact. So many of these folks who get into electoral politics and who come to Congress, they know that they ain't going to make 174K a year doing anything else. They don't have the skill set. They don't have the background. They don't have the education. When a lot of these folks come to Congress and they get that job, they know it's the best job they're ever going to have and they're going to do whatever they need to do to keep it. I think at sort of a very fundamental level that informs the approach that almost everyone in the Republican Party has taken to Donald Trump. It became abundantly clear once he became the Republican Party's nominee, uh, de facto nominee, I should say, in in May of, of 2016 after Cruz dropped out following the Indiana primary, it was clear that you're either with him or you're against him. The book, to your point a second ago, traces this long sort of ideological battle that had been simmering 
since George W. Bush left office. But what's so interesting is that really those ideological fault lines were sort of cast aside when Trump came along. And the party really over the last two and a half years, to the extent that there's been a civil war in the party, it's defined by this binary choice of are you with Trump or are you against Trump? It's not about conservative versus moderate. It's not about Tea Party versus establishment. And Trump has, I think, just through overwhelming force, kind of dominated the party. And, and we've seen the likes of Jeff Flake or or obviously Justin Amash just a couple of weeks ago leaving the party, Mark Sanford losing in his primary last year. I think it's abundantly clear to most Republicans in Washington that if you are going to speak out against Donald Trump, you are putting your career on the line. And that's something that most of these folks just aren't willing to do. I want to go back to to the divisions you just traced. So you're saying that the the division is not Tea Party or mainstream or um, conservative or, or, or moderate. It's Trump or not Trump. To me, when I read the book, the story that the book was really telling was the Republican Party having an eternal fight with itself over whether it will be a, a party of white identity politics, a party of like Christian white backlash to a demographically changing nation. And you make the point, you quote Tony Perkins in there saying that the Koch brothers wanted to say the Tea Party was about taxes and they tried to make it about taxes, but it wasn't. It was about culture and social issues and, you know, moms in Indiana who didn't like the world their kids were growing up in. And then Donald Trump comes in with a very, you know, a, a different spin on the same idea. So, I mean, isn't, aren't we just seeing a bunch of versions of the same debate play out? And at this point, arguably, the debate is settled that this is what the Republican Party is going to be, whether or not that's what its elites from five years ago wanted it to be. Yeah, look, I think that's right. Um, the party has been grappling for a very long time. There, there's this fascinating scene in, in the first chapter where Jim Toohey, who was a Bush 43 White House official, he ran the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives, where he talked to me about how he used to go up to Capitol Hill and meet with Republican lawmakers about some of these big Bush signature initiatives on prisoner reentry and refugee resettlement. And he talked about how all of these Republican lawmakers would just sort of look at him and their eyes would glaze over and, and they'd say, like, why are you talking to us about this? Like, you guys, you sound like Democrats. All this talk about compassionate conservatism and immigrants and inner city education programs, like, that's not who we are. And I think it's so important to place Trump in the context of all of that. I mean, there is this collective instinct that we all have because of the insanity surrounding us every day in this political environment, Ezra, to sort of lay everything that's happening, all of this polarization, all of this disunity at Trump's feet. And what I do try and uh, get across in the book is that this has been simmering for a very long time. And to your point about Republicans sort of uh, fighting with one another about what kind of party this was going to be, for my money, it actually has far less to do with politics than it has to do with culture, uh, to the question you were asking. Look, we know for a fact now that most of these uh, 87 House Republicans who came into Congress in that 2010 Tea Party wave and the overwhelming majority of them, of course, were talking about debt and deficit and spending and how Obama was bankrupting the country and they needed to, you know, we needed to fix our fiscal course before we went over the cliff, right? That was the 2010 election in a nutshell. That was much of the energy we saw on the right in opposition to Barack Obama. It was all fiscal. And the point that Tony Perkins makes, I think, is, is dead on. We know that, in fact, most of the energy there really was cultural. You can obviously chalk some of it up to an African-American president. You can chalk a lot of it up to the, the economic dislocation that was just battering the country at that point and people seeing immigrants come in and jobs come out and they're wondering what's going on to their communities. And I just think that when you fast forward, 
you know, eight or nine years from there, and you check back on how all of those Tea Party Republicans from 2010, how they voted now on things that were going to blow up the deficit, on, on spending bills that were just astronomically increased over the things that Obama was doing with his Democratic majorities, then it's a fairly simple conclusion to reach that most of these people weren't sincerely invested in those fiscal issues. They were just kind of using those fiscal issues as a very convenient concealer to, to, to mask some of the more visceral uh, instincts that were sort of driving the electorate at that point. Talk to me about those more visceral instincts. What were they? Well, look, uh, so there are a couple of really, really fascinating quote, um, uh, statistics, I should say, from, from that period of time that are just stuck in my head. And, and I grew up in a sort of middle-class, small-town suburb of, of Detroit, and I saw a lot of this firsthand where I was growing up. There was a statistic from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics that in an 18-month window spanning the end of the Bush presidency and the beginning of the Obama presidency, you had 2 million manufacturing jobs lost in that 18-month window. And those 2 million jobs represented 15% of the entire American manufacturing workforce. In just 18 months, 15% of it vanished, right? You combine that with, and, and, and when you think about even an issue like gay marriage, we don't even think anymore about same-sex marriage as a divisive political issue. But 10 years ago, when Barack Obama took office, he was still opposed to it. The country has changed so much in such a short period of time that when you layer that cultural change on top of that, you know, socioeconomic disruption on top of all of the political dysfunction, I think it sort of builds to a powder keg. And we knew that it was going to explode sooner or later. We just didn't know that Donald Trump was going to be the one to light the match. I want to think about this for a minute because there's a way in which I don't want to get into the old uh, sort of economic anxiety versus racial anxiety debate, but but. But something that I think is true about the Tea Party specifically and is illustrative is debt and deficits are a way of moralizing policy. Uh, the, it, it comes up all the time, but it's like the idea that you see you're being irresponsible. You're being loose. You're like doing something that um, is fundamentally reckless. And the way in which that got, gets weaponized repeatedly at Democrats, got weaponized specifically in this case at Barack Obama, and then gets abandoned, I think you're right to say that it is covering for something else. But the thing that it always seems to me to be covering for is given that then Republicans don't feel it's irresponsible to, to spend the way they do and tax cuts the way they do in power is who is getting helped. And, you know, there's a lot to say about manufacturing job loss and so forth. But the truth of the matter is, if you want to do something about manufacturing job loss, um, you don't have a lot of – Donald Trump, for instance, did not have a great policy set on this, even though I, I recognize he talked about it some. That the thing he was really able to say was that I'm going to run a government for you, right? Like I'm not going to take away your Social Security. I'm not going to take away your Medicare. I'm going to be here for you. It was a very ethno-nationalist pitch. And I just wonder how much – the Republican Party for a long time has been an engine that has been turning these ethno-nationalist resentments and then like using them, harnessing their, their energy <laughs> to power this ideological DC conservatism. And the thing that the past couple of years have done and that Donald Trump ultimately was a person to do, or at least try to do, you can argue how well he did it once in office, was break that apart. Just like set the energy free from the thing that was harnessing it mm -hmm. and just allow it to be the thing it actually was. 
So I think everything you just said makes perfect sense. I wouldn't disagree really with any of it. it you know, and and to the to the point about, you know, how far back do we trace this? Well, geez, I mean, you know, I start the book in the twilight of the Bush presidency, but you know, do you want to go back to Lee Atwater famously talking about how, you know, busing and and tax cuts were code for something much more sinister. Um, well, to be honest, I want to go back to Goldwater. I always think about Goldwater, who, you know, is the icon of conservatism. But like, what does he actually win in that election? He wins the Confederacy. Yes. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, look, and and even in a more modern prism, I mean, this is this is something that I think I accidentally left on the cutting room floor of the book. And I was just thinking about it the other day. But and it's something that I guarantee 99 percent of your listeners won't remember either. But there was a, a member of Congress, Austin Scott, a Republican who came in in that Tea Party class, who very famously at the time gave this kind of impassioned speech about Obama's cell phone program and like who was he giving these phones to, basically implying that like he was trying to give out cell phones to a lot of poor black people. And that caused kind of a, a rankle at the time. And it came and went. And then you had, of course, Newt Gingrich in that 2012 primary talking about the food stamp president and this incredible moment where uh, on the debate stage, uh, Juan Williams, the one of the moderators uh, for Fox News, confronted him over it and said, you know, that is some really seriously racially tinged language. Aren't you afraid of what that is going to do in terms of the Republican Party's image, et cetera, et cetera? And Gingrich uh, you know, scolded Williams and went right back at him. And the crowd just totally drowned out Williams, you know, jeering him and applauding Newt Gingrich. And of course, that incident happened on MLK weekend. I was at that debate in South Carolina. And it was this perfect sort of microcosm of exactly what you were just speaking to, which is to say that there has been, you know, whether you're going to go back and talk about the welfare queens or go back and talk about Atwater, Southern strategy, or bring it more modern, there has been a pretty consistent through line to that point you were making about, you know, a thinly veiled or not so thinly veiled strategy to talk economics through a darker prism. I want to talk about that machine, though, because I think that you're somebody who you're very, very well sourced in D.C. Republican circles. Um, and you've also done, as you say, a, a huge amount of reporting out in the country among conservatives. So in your experience culturally, how does the D.C. Republican set, at least the D.C. Republican set that preceded Donald Trump, differ from the base it whose ideas it claims to represent and operationalize. You know, so it's changed quite a lot, obviously, in a short period of time. And, and I don't attribute much of that to Trump. I think Trump accelerated the change. But you've had Ron Brownstein, who, who is a mentor of mine and, and a brilliant guy, obviously, in, in the field of you know political demographics. He's talked for a while about this class inversion where over the last couple of decades, you've seen more and more suburban, college-educated whites drifting away from the Republican camp toward the Democratic camp, obviously, in large part because of social and cultural issues. And then you've seen many more of these downscale, exurban, and rural, lesser educated whites drifting away from the traditional Democratic camp, moving into the Republican camp because of some of those same social cultural issues. I do think that this was happening, uh, th this, this divergence was sort of happening at a time in which the Republican political class was still kind of anchored to its post-Reagan orthodoxy. In, in other words, the Bush dynasty and Speaker Boehner, these guys were very much students of the old school Reagan Republican mantle. And they believed that, you know, more or less, the Wall Street Journal's editorial board was their guiding light. Um, and, and I think that as you saw 
the economy starting to stumble and as you saw the country demographically changing so rapidly and as you saw the country changing rapidly in terms of its views on everything from you know same-sex marriage to marijuana legalization you name it all these different things by and large most of the republican governing class in washington felt perfectly comfortable with those things. Uh, even if on the exact policies like same-sex marriage, they didn't uh, support them, they weren't kept awake at night by them either. And, and so they were sort of blissfully insulated from this fury that was beginning to percolate out in the provinces among a lot of their voters. And I think one of the really interesting moments I've had, Ezra, in the entire sweep of the, this last 10-year history was in the spring of 2016 when Trump started really running away with the Republican nomination. And I sat in for a background uh, meeting with a bunch of members of the Freedom Caucus. And these guys, their eyes were just wide and they were terrified because they had come to this sudden realization that Trump was basically exposing the Republican base that they thought existed to really be non-existent, that, that, that the Republican base he was turning out was not motivated by what Heritage Action or the Club for Growth or the Wall Street Journal editorial board wanted in terms of this ideological purity. They were much more motivated by those very visceral cultural social issues that we were talking about, the risk of repeating myself. That was really the, the kerosene that was fueling the fire. There is something about the wide-eyed innocence of the Tea Party guys <laughs> that just drives me nuts. Let me take this from the media perspective. You know, one of the things I do that, of course, you do um, is we report on members of Congress and we report to some degree or another what they're saying and what they what reasons they give for their actions. And, you know, you can doubt those reasons and you can argue with them and certainly you can say that the ultimate action is wrong or the, the analysis that led to it is wrong. But it's a little hard in general in journalism to just say without real proof, like you're just a liar, right? You're not, you're not doing what you're doing for any particular – for the reason you say you're doing it. And I just remember I spent a lot of time with Republicans in the Obama era. Um, I'll put aside the debt and deficit stuff for a minute, although that's in some ways an even better example. But I spent a lot of time hearing them talk about their principled, constitutionally rooted fear of an overreaching executive. Their, their, their disgust at the presidency, you know, which used to submit State of the Union reports in writing to Congress had become the celebrity-soaked whatever that Barack Obama was doing. You have a wonderful quote um, in the book from Mick Mulvaney talking about – I think it's in the book. Um, yeah. Uh, talking about – he's saying to you, I think this is in 2016, that if Donald Trump gets elected, well, people are going to really see that all this like fulminating from the floor of the House about what a problem it is that Barack Obama has arrogated all this executive authority to himself – it was not just partisanship, it was principled. And like there'll be a check on Donald Trump too. And like Mick Mulvaney is his chief of staff now, and he is not a check on Donald Trump. He is an enabler of Donald Trump's. I think it is a much more fundamental challenge to journalism and to just politics in general when whether people are being disingenuous in the moment, um, for them to be this uh inconsistent over time. You know, when we when the when the circle turns again, you know, if somebody else wins in 2020 and Republicans go back to being in the minority and you have another group of reformers rise up like Paul Ryan was after George W. Bush, like how how are you going to cover that, right? Having seen how little all that rhetoric amounted to as soon as Donald Trump took office. 
You know, it's such a good question. And I think the name of the game for any of us in the media has to be just intellectual consistency, right? Um, there is, look, I, I don't particularly care for a lot of people on Capitol Hill, regardless of whether they're wearing a red jersey or a blue jersey. I think that personnel is a major problem in the U.S. Congress. I just don't think that we have nearly as many capable, competent, professional, reasonable, pragmatic people there making these decisions as we need. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but there are a few people who I have really observed closely over the years who I really respect because they are intellectually consistent. And that's all you can ask for. Whether you think they're a far left lunatic or a far right lunatic or whatever, if they're at least consistent, then at the end of the day, you just tip your cap and say, you say, well, okay, at least you're saying the same thing today that you were saying 10 years ago. Perfect example of that is Justin Amash, right? Justin Amash comes in in that 2010 Tea Party class and I covered Justin Amash, it so happens, in the State House in Lansing, Michigan, uh, when when he was there for one term, and I was covering the State House before we both moved to D.C. So I've known the guy forever, and Amash, in the State House, and in his years serving in in the House Majority with a Barack Obama presidency, and Justin Amash up until you know two weeks ago when he left the Republican Party was the exact same guy. If you asked him a question about debt deficit or about any number of other things in, in relation to you know the federal government's role in, in American society, he would give you the same answer. And that's really, from my vantage point, that's all you can ask for. It's interesting that you cite Mulvaney because, look, Mulvaney used to drive people nuts because he was viewed as someone who was so doctrinaire, who, who was so sort of absurdly stubborn on certain issues. Remember his, his very contentious confirmation hearings because he had been too much of a fiscal hawk for McCain and for a lot of the armed services guys. They didn't want to confirm him. And so it was really interesting of everyone who went into work for Trump in the administration, I always thought that Mulvaney was going to be the most interesting person to watch because he really was somebody who struck just about everybody who had encountered him as somebody who held these very sincere, very deep-rooted philosophical beliefs. And he wasn't kidding when he talked about you know, when we spoke in the summer of 2016, he could barely hide his contempt for Donald Trump. I mean, he joked about, look, we're not going to let this guy shred the Constitution, even though he might want to, right? It's an amazing thing to look back on now, but he really did seem sincere when we were having those conversations at the time. And I was pressing him on this point saying, look, you guys have spent the last bunch of years talking about the imperial presidency and how Barack Obama has abused uh, his responsibilities, his 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 purview as the president and how Article One has prime under the Constitution and you guys need to retake your control. Are you going to do that even if there's a Republican president? And he and Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows and all of these leaders of the Freedom Caucus, they were adamant. Absolutely. We hope we get a Republican president because at least that will give us a chance to prove to everyone that we're consistent, that we want to apply the same rules across the board. And of course, Spoiler alert, a few years later, we have learned that that's not the case, that they're not consistent, and that the one guy, arguably in the Freedom Caucus, who really was Justin Amash, he left the GOP because of it. So what do you think happened there? What is your explanation for the Mulvaney and Meadows of the world? So I think that I don't want to be too reductive and just go back to what I said about political self-preservation, because I do think that's a part of it. But I think another part of it is proximity to power and how incredibly appealing that is, uh, you know, how intoxicating that can be for somebody like a Mark Meadows, right? I'm just going to, I'm going to pick on him for a minute. 
Mark Meadows is a guy who came to Congress in 2012 who had zero political background. This is a, a self-described fat kid who was a loner in high school. Nobody liked him, had no friends. He got rejected for dates. So he lost a bunch of weight, got the courage up to ask this girl out. She goes out with him. They get married. They pick this this very remote place in Western North Carolina to go for their honeymoon. They decide they really like it. So they move to Western North Carolina. He opens a sandwich shop. The sandwich shop does great. He makes a few bucks. He sells the sandwich shop. And then he gets into real estate, makes a few more bucks. And he, when his redistricting is done in North Carolina, they gerrymander the lines. There's this wide open seat in North Carolina that's ripe for a Republican pickup. And he drops a small fortune, buys the nomination, and he comes to Congress. Now, why do I mention all the backstory? Well, this is somebody who... By any traditional account, you wouldn't look at Mark Meadows and say, well, this is a, a very well-prepared or a very well-seasoned guy to come into Congress. But when Meadows comes in, he kind of looks around and realizes that the best way for him to carve out a niche for himself is to side with a bunch of these conservative agitators. And he does it really, really well. He's a smart guy. He's a well-spoken guy. But Mark Meadows, more than almost any single Republican member of Congress who I've covered, was absolutely nauseated at the ascent of Donald Trump in 2016. I know this because I had conversations with him about it, and I've talked with any number of his friends who relayed their conversations. In fact, I think I have an anecdote in the book where Meadows, the week before the 2016 Republican convention, was telling friends that he didn't think he was going to go because he was a delegate. And as a delegate, he would have to vote on the floor for Trump as the nominee of the party. And Meadows said to people, look, I'm not sure that I want my grandkids knowing that I cast a vote for this guy nominating him if he turns out to be this tyrant like we fear he might be. And to know that about Meadows and then to see this, I mean, transformation is, is an understatement, to see how he has completely uh, reversed himself and become one of Trump's closest allies and he's always whispering in his ear. I mean, do you chalk some of that up to you know, just being duplicitous or, or, you know, being a sociopath or whatever. I don't know. But what I do know is that when Mark Meadows saw Donald Trump was going to be the nominee, and when he saw that Donald Trump had an opportunity to win in November, and moreover, when he saw the fact that, you know, the, the Paul Ryans and Mitch McConnell's of the world, the establishment who uh, Meadows was trying to overthrow with the Freedom Caucus, when he saw that they had turned on Trump, and that the base was still very much behind Trump, Meadows and Jim Jordan and these guys, they played a little bit of three-dimensional chess and they threw basically all of their eggs in the Trump basket knowing that it was a win-win. If Trump won the presidency, then he would bring them in as his kitchen cabinet, as close allies who had supported him during tough times. And if Trump lost, then these Freedom Caucus guys could point the finger at that damned establishment who abandoned Donald Trump at his time of need. And all of that just to say, it's a little long-winded, but all of that just to say that when you study a guy like Meadows, it's very difficult to reach any other conclusion, but that the opportunity to be so close to power and to be so close to the president of the United States and to be on the phone with him two or three times a day and to have so much influence over policymaking and over big decisions that are made, I think for somebody like that, there's nothing to counterbalance it. There's no countervailing influence that is stronger than that opportunity that is being presented them. That's a very, I, I think it's true, but it's a very depressing view of these guys who come in with the, the, the highly principled brand. I mean, the whole idea of the ideological brand, right? The idea that you're a committed liberal, you're a committed conservative, even more that you're a committed constitutional conservative, right? Like the whole point of constitutional conservatism is that it's, it's bitter medicine, 
Mm-hmm. It's you're you're willing to not do things you want to do. I mean, I just had George Will on the on the podcast um, a couple of days ago, uh, and his new book, The Conservative Sensibility. It's like seven hundred pages about the glory of not giving people what they want, <laughs> and for that to hold so little protective power when tested seems to me to be a, a, a quite deep indictment of either what it is as a philosophy or what it is when practiced. Oh, all of the above. And, and But I would be remiss if I didn't make this point, Ezra, because the book is not meant to just hold up a mirror to Donald Trump and hold up a mirror to the Republican Party. It's also meant to hold up a mirror to us because at the end of the day, and I don't want to sound preachy here, but you know, we're the people who send these folks back to Congress every two years. It's really remarkable to think about the fact that in a political environment uh, where the institution of Congress is so disliked and and so loathed and held in such low esteem that think about last November, you have Democrats take 40 seats from Republicans. And that is by anybody's objective metric, a a wave election, right? Democrats retake control of the lower chamber. It's this sweeping rebuke to the incumbent president and to his party. And from coast to coast, you have all of these traditionally Republican held seats flipping to Democratic control. So that's a big news story, and we cover it accordingly. But when you think about it, there are 435 voting members in the U.S. House of Representatives. When 40 seats change hands, that's about 8% of the chamber. That means that even in a wave election like that, 92% of the seats remain loyally partisan. They're either locked down by the R's or locked down by the D's. And I do think that in that kind of an environment— even the people who come in professing to have these very strongly held beliefs, they took a, they take a look around them and most of them realize that, look, they're never going to face a challenge in a general election, nine out of 10 of them. They're not going to lose their seats in a general. Their, their only threat is going to be in a primary. So they are willing to make these accommodations. They're willing to sort of modulate their, their policy positions and modulate their voting records to essentially protect whatever flank they have, whether it's on their left if you're a Democrat or on your right if you're a Republican. And so you see it like clockwork every two years. I covered Congress for long enough. I mean, you do have these freshmen that come in and they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and idealistic and they want to change the world and they've got this very firmly held uh, set of principles and and they're going to stick to them, damn it, even if it only means they serve one term. But then they look around and they they get the lay of the land and they realize how the game is played and suddenly your principles become a little bit more elastic. And it is depressing, but frankly, I— you know, it's it's on us as much as it's on them because, again, we are the people who keep sending so many of these guys back cycle after cycle after cycle expecting it to change. I'm just going to um, build on one thing you said that I get in trouble for saying, but I think it's true. The reason this is so hard to root out is that it is sincere in the moments it is happening. There are a couple people I've covered who I think they're literally insincere. They're literally duplicitous, right? They know as they are saying one thing to you that they are believing another. Like, I do not believe that Mitch McConnell, when he was saying he had a principled objection to um, hearing Merrick Garland's nomination, believed right. that. Like, I think right. he knew exactly what was going on there. And like, Mitch McConnell's a person who's always playing six games at once. But a lot of them aren't like that. And they are sincere when they're telling you one thing. And then two years later, they're, they're sincere telling you the opposite. And then four years later, they're sincere telling you a, a whole third thing. And the human capacity to motivate yourself into contradictory points of intense, like table-pounding sincerity is a real um, dynamic. And it's a real dynamic that I think makes a hash of a lot of journalism. But I want to pull back on that because one of the things that we often let people do is define their political mission 
for us um, or for themselves, right? You know, why are you here? Well, I'm here because I care about the dead or I'm here because I care about this or that. You have a nice line in the book um, where you write, fight. Fight became the defining word of the modern Republican era. Their voters came to crave one quality above all others in their elected officials, a willingness to scrap, claw, kick, and bite on their behalf, demonstrating an understanding of their frustrations and their fears. And what struck me about that is that if you believe that what is at the core of modern republicanism, and you could argue in some cases at least modern politics, but I, I think it is much stronger on the Republican side, that it's really all about the fight, and particularly the fight with the left, then you know, going to war with Barack Obama over debt and deficits and how irresponsible he is with his Obama phones, that's one version of fighting. And then being on Donald Trump's side as the left tries to take him down and the deep state surrounds him, that's another version of fighting. And there's a consistency to you're just always at war with the left, no matter what the war is actually about. And if you believe that's what people are really doing, then they're not shifting positions. They're just shifting, like, you know, you, you you move from one kind of martial art to another, depending on what the game looks like around you at that time. But I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit more about the idea of fighting as like the defining, the defining concept in Republican Party politics right now. So I think to answer that, Ezra, is really to climb inside the mind of your typical conservative American who had at probably the halfway point of the Obama presidency had more than enough uh, of Barack Obama, felt as though the Democratic Party and the left more broadly uh, in terms of its sort of uh, cultural positioning was increasingly hostile, increasingly condescending, increasingly militant even. And what they saw from well, and you know, frankly, I think you could even go back to to Obama's 08 campaign because I was really surprised when I when I was talking with a lot of folks for the book about McCain's 08 campaign. And obviously, there's that very famous moment where McCain at the rally rebukes his own supporter who says that Obama's an Arab, and that was this viral clip that that encapsulated some of this ugliness uh, on the right that was rearing its head. But it was so interesting. I was in a conversation with Jim DeMint uh, and and one of his staff members, and Jim DeMint, of course, the former president of the Heritage Foundation, former uh, senator from South Carolina. And DeMint basically said, like, you know, in so many words, like, yeah, some of us kind of scratched our heads when John did that because, you know, yeah, he was right to defend Obama's character and he's not an Arab, but, you know, he probably could have done it in a way that showed that he understood the anger and the fear that this lady had. And I'm thinking to myself, like, uh, okay, well... You know, sure. But it's so interesting. Obama, in so many ways, as I write in the book, brought out the worst in the American right. And John McCain— God, I wonder why that was. Yeah, right. Well, and look, and that's the thing, right? John McCain, when you look at how he uh, sort of combated Barack Obama, what did he do? He vouched for his character, right? He defended him at some of these really critical moments. He wouldn't touch Reverend Wright. He, he reprimanded Sarah Palin for getting into the gutter and talking about him palling around with terrorists and all this other stuff. And then you move to 2012. It's so interesting. I had this really vivid scene uh, recalled for me where basically Mitt Romney was struggling in the campaign. He was consistently down four to six points in the polls, and they needed something to give the campaign a jolt to catch up with Obama in the late summer, early fall of 12. And he was presented with some very clear-cut polling on some new messages that could be pushed out that were going to be essentially identity-based dog whistling, uh, personal-based, obviously, and ethnic-based, but, but national-based as well. 
And, you know, Romney, for all of his other faults, and, and, and we could enumerate them, but Romney, to his credit in that moment, said, absolutely not. I'm not doing that. You know, uh, look, and Romney had some hardline stances on immigration. We all remember self-deportation and how that came back to bite him. But at least he sort of drew a line there and said, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Like, we're not going to try and win that way. And I think that it's really important to place the context of Trump in 16 in those two episodes, both Romney 12, McCain 08, and hell, even throw in Bush. Because Bush and compassionate conservatism, it really angered a lot of conservatives. They felt like he was being patronizing and he was being condescending, talking about how they needed to be kind to the poor and take care of uh, the you know, impoverished children in, in minority communities and everything else. So when Trump comes along and you've got the combination of a Republican Party that is increasingly viewed as, as weak and as unwilling to scrap with the left, that in conjunction with a Democratic Party and, and an American left that was increasingly viewed as sort of hostile and belligerent and, and trampling all over the right – Donald Trump sort of saw that and he steps in and presents himself as this brawler, somebody who maybe he doesn't share many of your policy positions. Maybe he's got a biography that you find distasteful. Maybe he says and does things every day that make you cringe. But at least you know that this guy's going to step in the ring for you and he's going to start throwing haymakers. And that's more than you can say for almost any of these other Republicans on stage. So it's a really hard thing to quantify this willingness to fight. But I just know from traveling that campaign all across the country, voter after voter after voter, you would constantly hear it. All of these Republicans would say, well, at least he's got balls. At least this guy is willing to say about Obama and say about Pelosi, say about Reid, all the things that we wish these other Republicans would say, but they're all too scared to say so. Do you think Donald Trump's positioning was cynical or was it authentic? Which is to say, you know, after 2012, for instance, Donald Trump tweeted <laughs> about how Romney blew this winnable election and the self-deportation stuff was so stupid. It's a it's an oft-made observation that, you know, when you looked at Donald Trump in that period, there was the birther stuff, particularly in the in the second half of Obama's presidency, but he looked like a guy who was sort of had very bizarre politics, was not all that conservative on a lot of issues. Um, and then there's been, the, I think, these sort of two um, looks at him. One is that actually he was a very deep cultural conservative, suspicious of trade going back forever, um, you know, and just like a Fox News watcher and, you know, just authentically represents outside of the base. And another is that he's an incredibly good marketer and he recognized where the opening was and he saw what worked at his own rallies and he just kept going further to that. Do you think Donald Trump sort of plays to the crowd or do you think he just is the crowd? You know, I hate to split the baby. I do think it's a little bit of both, but probably more of the former. And the reason I say that is – so I do think that Trump has a core set of convictions, but they're pretty narrowly tailored. And they're not convictions that he's necessarily prone to acting upon. So so foreign trade as an example or, or outsourcing, right? He, these are things that if you go back 30 years reading interviews with him, reading his books, it's a pretty consistent through line. But – you know, his he knows full well that his companies hire illegal immigrants. He knows full well that his ties are being made overseas instead of being manufactured in the U.S. So in other words, can you really call them convictions if he doesn't act upon them? I don't know. That's probably a deeper psychological question. But I do think that he has that pretty narrow set of uh, of beliefs, let's call it, where, you know, he believes that that global trade is injurious to the American worker and he believes that unchecked levels of immigration are injurious to the American worker. So I do think that he believes in some of those sort of bedrock things and that he cleaves to them. However, 
I also think that more than probably any politician in modern American history, he is exceptionally opportunistic. And I should add, opportunistic in a way that is almost impressive, whether you love him or hate him. This is a guy who just has a nose for a fight, a guy who has a nose for, look, he saw this thing brewing in the Republican base way before any of these other people did. And and he wasn't even a part of the Republican Party. And frankly, the fact that it was brewing in middle America in these sort of small, beat up, rust belt towns uh, where the, the, you know, with the American carnage of the rusted out factories that he talked about, the fact that he's seeing that from his gilded skyscraper on Fifth Avenue is all the more impressive. And again, it's not to say whether you love him or hate him, but he's opportunistic in a way that he can sort of shape shift to meet a moment and to harness a, a certain passion that exists in the electorate. But I think it's important to sort of distinguish things like the kind of white nationalism, which I think he was embracing more opportunistically than out of conviction versus something like global trade, which I do think was much closer to a conviction than it was to just a nakedly opportunistic play for votes. Tell me why you think the embrace of the kind of quasi-white nationalism, sometimes actual white nationalism, but, but a lot of the times more of a wink and a nod towards it was opportunistic because my model for Donald Trump is that he's like a lot of voters and that he does not have, even at this point, amazingly, uh, he does not have very detailed opinions on deep policy questions, but he has extremely deep cultural aversions and repulsions. So he does not like the fact that the country is changing. He does not like the fact that there are things that he cannot say. Like he's like an aging white guy who really dislikes the way things around him seem to be slipping from his grasp. And now he's he's got it all in his grasp, so I guess good for him. But that his aversions are very real and his positions are very superficial. Yeah, it's a good question. I think what I'm talking about is sort of the political opportunism inherent to embracing some of that quasi-white nationalism or, or outright white nationalism, as you said. Um, because, look, I think when Trump was surrounding himself with people like Stephen Miller and, and Steve Bannon in the campaign and, and then in the early stages, of course, in his presidency, the one thing you would constantly hear from, you know, when you talk to lawmakers who were over with him or, or, or West Wing aides, they would constantly talk about Trump's obsession with the base. And this is very different. I, I want to really highlight this point because I think it's underappreciated. Most presidents really try to bend over backward to appeal to the many at the expense of the few. And Donald Trump is just foundationally different in that respect. He, time after time after time as president, he has tried to cater to the few at the expense of the many, believing that only by uh, supplicating the few and only by continuing to feed and mobilize the, the few that he can win re-election, that, that he is never going to have broad enough appeal to, uh, to win a general election. I only mention that because Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller and some of the other folks that, are around the, that were around the president, I think that they were instrumental in pushing Donald Trump, who, as you correctly noted, Ezra, I mean, look, think about a septuagenarian white guy from Queens, just pick out 500 of them and do a survey. I'm going to guess that their views on race relations and demographic transition and all these other things are probably going to be pretty squarely aligned with where Trump is, right? So that's not a shocker. But I don't know that 
on his own, Trump would have necessarily been playing to the sort of, very overtly anyway, to the sort of white nationalism that he wound up playing to. Because I I do think that his obsession with base politics and whether it's, you know, Colin Kaepernick or you name the cultural flashpoint du jour, I think he was convinced increasingly, especially after taking office, that he could not afford to alienate a lot of these people who had come to depend on him to play to those white nationalist politics. In other words, it almost, I feel like, became a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is not to exonerate him in any sense, but I just don't think that it was necessarily a part of those core convictions. Again, go back 30 years and read his interviews and his books. It wasn't something that was really a constant theme then. So I think that part of it is maybe just his natural aging process and he's viewing the the, the world differently as the country is changing. But I also think that there was a clear political incentive for him there and that he saw it and then he ran with it. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. So one thing that we've done in this conversation, which I think is very common in conversations about the Republican Party, is we've obviously talked a lot about Donald Trump. And then we've talked, you know, a bit about Paul Ryan and John Boehner. They've come up. And we've not talked about Mitch McConnell. Yeah. And like Mitch McConnell, you know, is just like the dark lord of the Sith back there in the shadows. <laughs> and, you know, Boehner and Ryan... I think the picture of them you get in your book, I think the picture of them that is true is they're men overtaken by events. They they seemed in control of things for a while and then they got overwhelmed and 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 they're out of the picture now. Um but Mitch McConnell is not. Mitch McConnell, I think, even more so possibly than Donald Trump, has actually been quite in control of events. And you make an argument in, in the book that there is no Donald Trump without the strategic movements of Mitch McConnell over the past couple of years. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you view Mitch McConnell's role in this Republican transition and just how you view Mitch McConnell. Like, how do you describe what he is out for and how he sees the world? Boy. Where to start? I think to understand Mitch McConnell is to understand that he is highly adaptable. Boehner 
and Ryan and so many of these other folks, frankly, they were in, in large part overtaken by events and they were overtaken by events because they were unable to sort of see what was coming and, and to adapt to it. Mitch McConnell is a guy who's been around for a very, very long time and who has built this incredible political operation where he's got people sort of placed strategically all about town and 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 all throughout the Senate. He's got allies and eyes and ears everywhere. And, and that's a strength for him, obviously, because he's always got people watching his back. But McConnell just has this uncanny sixth sense about where the political winds are blowing, and frankly, kind of how to see around the corner, to mix metaphors there. But but a lot of politicians lack that ability to see around corners, and McConnell does it as well as anybody. I think what's interesting is that McConnell, if you contrast his approach to Donald Trump during the 2016 campaign with that of Ryan, right? Here are the two highest ranking Republicans in Washington, the, the majority leader of the Senate, the Speaker of the House, and their approaches to Trump were night and day. They could not have been more different. Whereas Paul Ryan was out seemingly almost every week offering a criticism or a rebuke of Donald Trump and and attempting to distance himself and distance the party more broadly from Trump and some of the self-destructive antics and, and rhetoric, Mitch McConnell laid really low, man. He, he, he was very careful not to put himself in the crosshairs of Trump, not just because he was worried about catching some of the backlash from Trump world that that Ryan caught. But I think McConnell understood probably much better than Ryan and much earlier than Ryan that what Trump was tapping into was something that was very, very real. And that even if Trump did not wind up winning the nomination and becoming the party's standard bearer, that Republicans were going to have to grapple with Trumpism for for some time to come, regardless of whether or not he, he won the nomination or became president. So I think McConnell was already beginning to sort of play three-dimensional chess and 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 try to recognize some of this shifting in the electorate and specifically within the Republican base and get ahead of it and insulate himself from it. And, you know, even go back before Trump came on the scenes, there was this amazing moment back in the 2014 election cycle where Mitch McConnell was facing a Tea Party challenger. And remember, of course, that in 2010 and 2012, the Tea Party had really wiped out the establishment. It was a bloodbath. And so in 2014, Mitch McConnell is up for re-election in Kentucky. He's got this very wealthy businessman who's going to run against him in the in the Republican primary. So what does Mitch McConnell do? He goes and hires the campaign manager for Ron Paul, the junior senator from from Kentucky, whose candidacy uh, McConnell had vehemently opposed back in 2010. He had tried to crush the Tea Party in Kentucky. McConnell not only makes nice with Rand Paul once he gets to the Senate, and these two guys couldn't be more different, of course, but McConnell then goes and hires Paul's consigliere to manage his campaign. And what does he do? He comes out at CPAC that year holding a gun in the air, a musket in the air, and playing to the crowd that way. And it was almost comical to those of us who saw it and those of us who know McConnell and know that he has nothing but loathing for for the Paul faction of the party and that he's not a guy who who enjoys the CPAC crowd and this sort of, you know, bloodthirsty red meat rhetoric uh, that that entails. But McConnell will do whatever he needs to do to protect his vulnerabilities because he's got a lot of them. He's he's not a great retail politician. He's not a guy who is going to you know blow somebody away with a speech. But McConnell is just very, very savvy. And he's savvy in a way that drives 
Democrats crazy because they they cannot seem to solve the puzzle of, of how to get around him. And obviously, this goes back to the Obama presidency. Obama could not get anything done with McConnell. It ultimately always wound up being the vice president, Joe Biden, who knew how to work with McConnell because he'd been around for three decades with him and knew all of his tricks. I'm a little skeptical of the Joe Biden knew how to work with McConnell narrative. We can we can put a pin in that if we want to come back to it. But I will say with McConnell, one of the things that I do think is underappreciated about him A problem of political journalism in general is we are very focused on public messaging and communications. And more, I think, appropriately, we're also very focused on public opinion. And you put those things together, and that's a very that's a that that orients us towards politicians, um, whether they they're presidents or not, like Obama, like Trump, like Paul Ryan, politicians who what they're kind of trying to do is play a game in the court of public opinion and do so through public um, through public messaging. What McConnell always seems to me to be very good at doing is creating the institutional context for things he wants to do. We do a poor job, it seems to me, covering institutions and the way America's political institutions fundamentally work. But McConnell understands that very well. And McConnell, it seems to me, has understood two things. One is that uh, in the Obama era, the bipartisanship was a resource controlled by the minority, not controlled by the majority. Um, And number two, though, is that he was able, particularly around the Merrick Garland um, seat, to ramp up the institutional stakes of the election such that it didn't really matter who it was on the Republican ticket. It just needed – there needed to be a Republican because the cost of there not being one was so obviously high. And McConnell, I think, just understands better than anyone else that there's a way in politics to use the veto points and use the power of blocking things to create, on the one hand, depression on one side, right? Like, yeah, all these liberals have been like, well, we can't get anything done, so what does it matter if we vote? You know, and what does Hillary Clinton need to get done if Barack Obama has had these like depressing last couple of years? And then on the other side, you know, he created a possibility where you might believe Trump was going to do everything else wrong, but at least you were going to get a Supreme Court seat. At least you were, you were not going to lose the Supreme Court to the liberals. And I think it's a very good argument that while he does not get much blame for it, McConnell, more so than anyone else, is a person who like set this whole era into motion. No question. And frankly, Ezra, to, com- to connect that point back to something we were discussing earlier, I think McConnell also innately understands that – and it's pretty impressive for, for an older guy who doesn't exactly look you know, to be tech savvy. McConnell, I think, understands that in the social media age, our attention spans have shortened and our capacity, especially in the media, for recognizing and pointing out hypocrisy and inconsistency has, has shrunken, frankly. I write about in the book how when the Obamacare push was really in its final stages, how there was this wailing and gnashing of teeth on the Republican side of the aisle, both in the House and in the Senate, where they were trying to convey to the American people that this bill was being shoved down their throat, that it was completely undemocratic, that the process was corrupt. And obviously, look, you had some partisan warfare there, but nobody could, nobody who covered the Affordable Care Act process could say that it happened overnight. I mean, you had over a year of, of debate and amendments and hearings and back and forth and working groups. There was a lot that went into that. So for, for Republicans to make that argument, again, you know, politically, you could justify it, sure, but but it wasn't completely sincere, obviously. What's so gobsmacking, however, is to fast forward seven, eight years and you're watching as 
In the House, Paul Ryan is is crafting a, a health care bill in private, rolling it out and trying to vote on it in a matter of 14 or 15 days. And on the Senate side, the window's even shorter. You've got Mitch McConnell basically pulling up bills out of out of thin air, giving the Senate sometimes two and a half or three hours notice to, to, to vote on them. I mean, that is... Look, I agree with your criticisms of uh, of the media in not properly covering these things, but I also think that there are folks in the political class who are just willing to be that nakedly hypocritical, at least as it pertains to the process. It's a huge failing of, of the media, I agree, but it's also a huge failing of, of, of taxpayers, to my earlier point about like, we send these people back and when they do this, when they so blatantly disrespect us in that way, they don't get punished for it. There is a speech McConnell gave in 2014, and it's called, I believe it's called Restoring the Senate. And this is before the election and McConnell's minority leader. And it's a speech about how he would run the Senate if they took it back. And it's all about, you know, regular order. And he says, you know, if I were doing a big bill like Obamacare and I saw that it didn't have any bipartisan support, I would realize we shouldn't do that bill. <laughs> like he says it explicitly. Yep. And it's one of, you know, six or seven things he says in there that just – I mean, I didn't cover the speech at the time. Um, and I don't know what I would have if I had been because it was McConnell's – the level of um, cynicism in McConnell's work was very evident even then. But it's just like <laughs> – like what do you do with that? <laughs> like it's just – it's bullshit and he knows it and he kind of knows we know it. And there's a thing with him where um, – like it's too much of a game. He's like not even trying to keep the trappings of it. The thing the that happened a couple of weeks ago where he got asked if there was a vacancy on the court in 2020, <laughs> would you fill it? And he smirked and said yes. I don't know that it really works at this point because I think people – I think even the press at this point apply a discount rate to McConnell's um, rhetoric. But you know, the way in which he kind of understands that you have to pretend – that politics is high-minded and there's no real consequence for then betraying all those pretensions is a real – I mean it's one of those things that seems to me – his success seems to me to be an indictment of the system. Now, maybe it's always been thus. But it doesn't mean that one should be totally um, inured to it. Oh, totally. Well, and, and look, you see my feeling on that – and tell me if you disagree, Ezra, but I think that McConnell is banking on a couple of things. I think he he's banking on – Obviously, what we've been talking a little bit about, which is the media's struggle with, you know, what to call a lie and and, and how to cover it and how to sort of d distinguish skepticism from cynicism and, and all of the tonal intricacies that go into political coverage. I think that's a part of it. And he recognizes how to exploit that. But I also think that what he recognizes and it's and it's kind of sinister and it's kind of sad, but it's the reality is that. The American people, by and large, already have baked into their perception of Congress the fact that it is duplicitous, that it is disingenuous, that it is dishonest. And I think when you get to that point, uh, when, when you're a politician and you recognize that you can answer a question in a way that is just blatantly inconsistent with how you answered it a couple of years ago, and you can kind of smirk and, and wink and nod and get away with it because you know that even if you get called out on it, 
most people, they just sort of throw up their hands and say, well, what'd you expect? These guys are politicians. I, I have a favorite story, uh, if I can bore you with it for just a second, and it's not in the book, but one of my favorite stories uh, that John Boehner told me was that when he was running to become the leader of the Republican Party, this is back in 06, 07, uh, he's running to become the top-ranking House Republican, and it's a very competitive internal election. And Boehner had built his entire career around this idea of cleaning up government. He was this crusader when he came in, and he took down the House Bank and the House Post Office. He got indictments. And he was a guy who, despite the $5,000 suits and the country club memberships, who was really a good government guy. He had never taken an earmark in his life, and he built his entire campaign internally to become the Republican leader around these ideas of accountability and transparency, and we're going to clean up Congress. And to make that clear, the signature promise of his campaign was, I am going to get rid of earmarks. If you elect me to lead the House Republican Conference, I will get rid of earmarks. That was his signature promise. So the election day comes, and Boehner wins by a pretty narrow margin. And he's a little bit surprised that he wins because he won on the support of some of the most influential members in the conference, committee chairmen, subcommittee chairmen, appropriators. And he goes to these guys and he says, hey, I'm a little surprised. Uh, you know, getting rid of earmarks is going to screw all of you. Why'd you vote for me? And their answer was, we think that you were lying. In other words, these are the people who we send to Congress and, and on this very fundamental baseline decision that they have to make, this vote that they have to take internally on who's going to be their leader, many of these most influential members in the conference cast their vote under the assumption that this guy was lying about the signature promise he had made in his campaign. Lying to them. Lying to them. And I just think that that's a breathtaking <laughs> anecdote when you really step back and think about it, because if that's how the members, the, the lawmakers, the elected officials themselves operate, then how do we operate subconsciously? But I actually want to take up another part of that anecdote, because I think this is something that you learn as a political reporter, although you can tell me if you think it's wrong, and that is not clear if you're outside the system. Members of Congress are extremely misinformed on each other. The, the thing that was the most strange to me when I began reporting on Congress, and I was I came to Washington when I was 21, and I would be talking to these members of the House or the Senate. I mean, I was very impressed by that, right? Like I was a, I was a kid. <laughs> and, and, and they were talking to me. I mean, it's the American prospect. So, you know, at least some of them would talk to me sometimes. And they'd be like, well, what are you hearing? And, you know, or I'd be asking about something Reed was doing. And they're like, well, yeah, I, I don't know. Like I, I saw him say in National Journal the other day. Or I would talk to somebody in a leadership office and I'd be asking them about something Lieberman was doing on the bill. And they'd say, oh, you know, we're not sure, um, but something he said the other day in Politico. And it was this moment where I was like, are they learning about each other the same way we're learning about them? Yep. Like I had always thought they must have – like they must call each other or they have some kind of internal information system. But they don't. They're constantly wrong about what the other ones are doing. They're mad at each other, so they're not talking to each other. I, I think people really underestimate how bad the information processes inside Congress actually are. It seems like they should know what's going on inside their own institution. But the degree to which they don't and particularly to which they don't if they're you know outside a couple of the core positions is really striking to me. There's no question, and I can just tell you from firsthand experience that 
I think a reason that I was able to be somewhat successful in covering Congress and break some news over the years it's was a, it's a very that's a very humble way of putting what you've been. <laughs> well, thank you. But but really though, I, I found uh, to, to the point you just made, you're so right. When I would sit down with a member and uh, we'd start shooting the shit. I would realize in nine cases out of 10 that they wanted more information from me than I yep. wanted from them. And that if you were willing to trade the gossip and if you were willing to just, you know, BS for a little while with them, you could get really great information because they've got the, you know, they've got the immediate stuff. They've got the stuff that's close. You know, they just came out of a conference meeting or they were out for beers at Tortilla Coast the night before and they were hearing this rumor about X, Y, and Z. They've got that sort of immediate stuff. But anything that's even like one level to the periphery is pretty much lost on them. So they are really poorly informed. You're absolutely right about that. And I'll tell you another thing to kind of layer on top of it. And this really puts a bow on our earlier conversation about, um, you know, political self-preservation and and how these people stay in power. The most striking thing to me, Ezra, from covering Congress that I concluded sort of almost universally about the people we send to Washington is that they are reactionaries. They're not leaders. The overwhelming majority of these folks even if they do have pretty strongly held convictions, they are constantly reacting to what is happening. They are not looking to drive public opinion. They are typically reacting to public opinion. And now, obviously, they can cherry pick which public opinion they're looking for on any given issue, any given debate. But I was really taken aback when I first started covering Congress at just how few of these folks really do have to use the you know terrible cliche, kind of that courage of their convictions where they were willing to stick their neck out on the line and go for broke on something that they believed in. And you would always find yourself wondering when you were covering Republicans and, you know, John Boehner had this famous moment where Dave Camp uh, had produced with, with Max Baucus, the Senate Democrat, a, a tax reform blueprint that these guys had worked on for like four years. They traveled the country selling it and they finally rolled it out. And we asked Boehner about it at a press conference and Boehner just sort Sort of rolled his eyes and he said, blah, blah, blah. And that was a moment where we thought, well, geez, that's kind of that's kind of a dick move. He's being dismissive. In fact, it wasn't just him being dismissive. It was him providing cover to his conference because Boehner knew that probably three quarters of his members wanted nothing to do with a vote on tax reform, a, a, a vote that was going to be really politically dangerous for them. So most of these folks, as much as they may talk about their unhappiness with the process or how they don't like how much power is concentrated in the hands of leadership or committee chair most of these folks are actually quite content with the status quo and they're certainly not looking to shake things up and certainly not looking to really lead these conversations as much as they are looking to, to react to what's happening in a way that protects them and insulates them. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. 
Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So you covered Boehner very closely. He was a key source in the book. Um, and he was somebody who was clearly not quite of the right wing of his party. It's modern version. He was in 94. But he eventually got overwhelmed by it. Um, he was not a, the, the Freedom Caucus, the Tea Party. Like He he was not able to harness that. It, it, it eventually destroyed his speakership. Uh, Paul Ryan seemed more authentic of the right of the, that era, but also ultimately w- was not able to be successful in in holding the the tensions of his party together as speaker, and I think has ended up um, amassing a record for himself that is not going to look good. I know you mainly cover Republicans, but we're watching Nancy Pelosi's speakership right now, and as we're talking, she's in the middle of a, a pretty explicit fight with the, the the left wing of her caucus, where she's clearly trying to reduce some of their power in a bid, you can say, to protect some of her more moderate incumbents, in a bid to calm things down in the caucus, or just in a bid to assert control. I'm curious how you distinguish or, or, or how you look at Pelosi's style of leadership versus Ryan and Boehner's. So I would say two things. The first thing I would say is that Pelosi, without question, ha- has been a stronger speaker than than either Boehner or Ryan. Uh, she has, and I'm looking at the the body of her work here. She has consistently demonstrated a, a stronger hand. She commands the respect of her of her rank and file in a way that neither Boehner nor Ryan ever did. Uh, she has a sort of legislative guile about her that I think is um, almost unmatched in 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 the sweep of at least the modern speakership. If you were to go back, maybe just three or four generations, but maybe even longer. Uh, I think she is sort of a singular figure. So to the second part, I would in many ways hesitate to draw distinctions between this 2018 Democratic class and the 2010 Republican class. I know everybody wants to make that comparison. I don't think it holds up in, in, in certain areas, but I will say this. What Nancy Pelosi is dealing with right now is really eerily similar to what John Boehner was dealing with for one primary reason. When a two-term president of a party leaves office, there is this very natural 
power vacuum that opens up and not just a power vacuum but a vacuum for ideas and for personalities and for leaders and 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 what direction are we going to go in and when george w bush left after his two terms the party went through that now it just so happened that the party was going through that in 9 10 11 just as social media is exploding just as cable news is reaching its peak in terms of popularity you have an enormous amount of disruption happening in in terms of media and also you know that cultural dislocation we were talking about earlier you have all of these swirling forces. And here is John Boehner, an institutionalist, if ever there was one, who feels like, you know, I've, I have I was a conservative when I came here and I know how these guys feel and I'm going to be able to get them under control. And of course, he was he was dead wrong about that. He just he was not able to keep a lid on that rebellion because he did not have the experience in this new political age to deal with these folks. And he did not understand these new incentive structures that existed. He just could not adapt to that environment. And I will say that in that respect, the parallel to Pelosi is very real because Pelosi is now dealing with a Democratic caucus that is existing in that same social media environment. And after a two-term president leaves office in Obama, the, the Democrats are going through that same sort of wilderness phase of who do we want to be as a party. But I would add to it, Ezra, that it's been turbocharged on the left because of Donald Trump. There is such... There is so much angst. There is so much indecision. There is so much concern within the Democratic Party about what Donald Trump is doing to the country, to the to the political process, to the institutions of government, that I think that it is adding sort of a, a, a it's introducing an added layer of urgency and even in some cases of panic, outright panic to this fight within the Democratic Party. And so I almost feel like Pelosi has a harder job on her hands than Boehner did at this point, you know, eight or nine years ago. To, to offer a, a counter a counter thought on that, I think that two things that make it a little bit different and have strengthened Pelosi's hand, although we'll see how this all plays out and certainly we'll see how it plays out in the long run, right? I think there's a very interesting question of the Democratic Party that I have a view on, but I don't hold it strongly of whether or not in their polarization and internal construction, um, they are traveling a different path than the Republican Party or they're traveling a path 10 years behind the Republican Party. And I just don't think we quite know the answer to that. Um, although I, I think for their reasons to expect that it may not go the same way as Republicans did. But something I think is interesting about the effect Donald Trump seems to have had on a lot of the Democratic base is he's. you're right, I think, that he is a context for virtually everything everybody thinks about. But Democrats have tend to develop very self-preservationist, to, to use a term that's come up a couple times here, instincts when they're out of power. And the thing that Pelosi is being able to leverage quite effectively, as far as I can tell within the caucus, is a feeling that their hold on power right now, given that it's only in the House and it is reliant on a lot of very moderate districts, is tenuous. And they have to be careful with it. They have to be cautious with it. And that these, um, the squad is not being cautious with it. That's fundamentally her argument. And that secondarily, if they're going to win in 2020, the party can't move too far to the left. And there's something to, you know, people can argue about whether or not Pelosi is wrong on that. But I do think Democrats, in a way that isn't true for Republicans, end up being somewhat disciplined by recognizing that the geographic electoral deck is consistently stacked against them. They have to win over voters a little bit to the right of the median voter if they're going to win the Electoral College, if they're going to win back the House, if they're going to win the Senate. And it just creates this inability to just fully say, you know what, like whatever the base wants. Um, 
Now, I don't know. The thing I don't know is if it wasn't Pelosi and her deep relationships and, and her kind of um, institutional power, would another speaker be able to do that? Would is that a? I, I do think she's taking advantage of something that is very real inside the democratic structure, but I don't know if she's the only one who could take advantage of it. And I don't know if you know in the long run she'll be able to like run this for another year or two. But then you know the the, the party is going to move away from her. But it doesn't seem to me the Democrats and Republicans have reacted to this in in all that similar ways. I was always very struck in the um, uh, Obama era by how far right Republicans moved at a time when they were very desperate to go back into power. Whereas, you know, I think if you look at the story of a lot of Democrats, you're seeing a, a move to the left in the presidential. But at the congressional level, they're very protective of their moderate members in a way that Republicans did not seem to be at that same in, in that same era. Look, I think you just made a couple of terrific points, and to sort of uh, distill the the second one, I think it's imperative to understand, and that's why I said a minute ago that I I'm really hesitant to embrace a lot of the comparisons between that 2010 Republican wave, 2018 Democratic wave. I think uh, the, the the central reason I'm hesitant is because of what 2010 represented for Republicans beyond taking over Congress. Republicans were able to take back control of the redistricting process in so many of these states that that in turn enabled that lurch to the right that you were just referencing. Whereas Democrats in 2018, they won a bunch of these traditionally Republican House seats back in a lot of these sort of R plus two, R plus three, R plus four suburban anchored uh, swing seats that are going to be purple for a very long time, barring the totally unforeseen. And so there is not they they have not sort of mechanically regained any control of those states. Uh, and even in the state legislatures they took back, we're not going to know until after the 2020 election who's got the power to draw these maps in most places. So I do think that as a matter of sort of manipulating political power and, and leveraging political power, Republicans were able to they had the luxury of basically moving right in a way that Democrats don't. And I do think that to the point you raised about Pelosi and some people can disagree with her approach and whether or not she's right, I actually think she's exactly right. If you if you look at how this Democratic majority was won last November, you look, the squad, they are not the majority makers, right? I, I wrote this piece, you know, four or five months ago about these two freshmen from Minnesota who are in neighboring districts, Dean Phillips, who won Minnesota 3, which is a seat that had been held by the Republicans since 1960, uh, which is amazing. And and, Dem and and Dean Phillips, who's a very uh, business-friendly, moderate Democrat, if you close your eyes, you'd probably think he was a Republican. He wins this seat by barely mentioning Trump's name. And right next door in Minnesota's 2nd District is Ilhan Omar, of course, who is in about as safe of a blue seat as, as, as humanly imaginable. And when you compare and contrast these two individuals, it's clearly the Dean Phillips of the caucus who helped the party to take back the majority. And it's clearly the Dean Phillips is of the caucus that Nancy Pelosi is trying to protect. But public perception is everything in politics. And 99.9% .9 of Americans don't know who the hell Dean Phillips is. But I'm going to guess that a whole lot of Americans now know who Ilhan Omar is. And so 
Look, what you and this gets back to the point I was making a minute ago about this social media environment. It is really something to think about the fact that a bunch of freshman congresswomen who have been in office now for what six or seven months that they all have just as big a microphone, if not a bigger microphone to speak on these things than does the Speaker of the House. That's something that was simply unimaginable, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. And I think that the institutional challenges that poses, not just to Pelosi, but to the Congress itself and to the legislative process, that's something that we're really going to have to start reckoning with. Uh, and it's not just a partisan issue. It's not even an ideological issue. It's what do you do uh, with when the political system is sort of inverted and when the powers that be no longer possess that power? I mean, it, it, we're in an era that is straightforwardly going to weaken the party institutions. That's why I say that I don't know. I, there are, I think, reasons to believe that Democrats are not going to go exactly down the path Republicans did just due to the structure of their coalition and the geography they need to win. But I think you're seeing the breakdown of party strength on both sides. And Democrats, again, are, are, are behind Republicans on this. But I don't know. I think that if you know, if Nancy Pelosi retires in a couple of years, and I don't, I, I, I honestly have no idea who the next speaker will be of Democrats or the the next minority leader, if if that's the context. I am skeptical they will have the like strength inside the caucus to make some of the decisions Pelosi is making right now. There's a lot of anger, and I think some of it is merited uh, about the way Pelosi is handling impeachment and investigations, um, and and then certainly uh, about her confrontation now, her 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 decision to elicit a confrontation with the squad. But whether you think it's good politics or it's bad politics or good moral or, 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 or bad morals, I don't think her successor is going to be able to do it. I don't think a, a, even just a somewhat weaker speaker would be able to sort of hold the line the way Pelosi believes she should on impeachment. And like that's just going to be – we're just entering a very different era of party leaderships um, where you know, the, the, the most fundamental kind of power is power over information and uh, power over what people are hearing and what gets covered. And speakers used to have a lot of that, and they just don't anymore. Like the information is is scattered in a completely different way. And I think that's behind a lot of the changes that you're tracking in the Republican Party. And and I think it's behind some things like the rise of Bernie Sanders and, and, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the Democratic Party. And so in that way, I think the two are going to follow um, at least similar, similar tracks in terms of their own institutional uh, internal weakness. I completely agree, and I would even take it a step further uh, when you talk about sort, you know, the the the, the weakening of the parties a, as a as a continual thing. I actually think that the parties today are about as weak as we've seen them in, le in at least a century. Um, and it's look if if the Republican Party was a strong, self sufficient, confident entity, there is no way that Donald Trump would have become its nominee in 2016. I mean, that's just a fact of, of, of nature. Look, there's a scene in the book where Reince Priebus is, is just terrified about what to do with Donald Trump because he's threatening to run as an independent. And so he drafts this loyalty pledge. And a number of his closest advisors, they come to him and they say, look, Reince, we know you're worried about this guy, but you need to tell him to get his ass down to Washington, D.C. and frog march him into the RNC office with the cameras rolling and have him sign the paperwork in your office. And then you walk out front of the building with him and you declare victory. And Trump gets on the phone with Priebus and says, no, 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 I can't get down to D.C. You got to come up here to Trump Tower. And everybody around Reince says to him, don't do it. It's you, you are going to look weak. No one person is bigger than the party. But Priebus said to them, guys, 
you're making too much of this. It's distinction without a difference. Who cares? We just got to get this thing signed. And he goes up to New York hat in hand. And when Trump signed the document, he kicked Priebus out the back door and he went down and held a press conference all on his own. And that incident, I think, is just so telling in terms of how these parties have been weakened. Look, Ezra, in, for my money, the high watermark of Democratic enthusiasm in the entire 2016 cycle was on March 8th when Bernie Sanders beat Hillary Clinton in the Michigan primary. He'd been down 20 points in the polls. And the feeling there was that if Hillary really squashed Bernie in Michigan, then it was going to be kind of this sort of watershed in the race where anybody taking him seriously would no longer take him seriously. Maybe he wouldn't drop out, but that was basically going to be it. And the rest would be academic. Instead, he comes back and he beats her. And there's this huge new injection of life and energy and optimism into his campaign. The reason I mention that is just to say that when you think about all of the energy behind Donald Trump in 2016 and all of the energy behind Bernie Sanders in 2016, I think you can very plausibly make the case, as I do in American Carnage, that the two candidates who drew the most enthusiasm from the respective party bases in 2016, neither of them belonged to those parties. Bernie Sanders had never been a Democrat and Donald Trump had never been a Republican. And I think just that on its face is a really terrible stinging indictment of the power or lack thereof that these parties possess in the modern political age. I think that is a good place to, to bring to a close. Let me ask you what's always the final question here, which is, what are three books that have influenced your thinking over the years that you would recommend to the audience? So, boy, you know, I, I'm I'm big on reported books, but uh, I wouldn't necessarily name any political books. Um, I guess the first I would I would name I would have to name is The Looming Tower by Lawrence Wright, which is uh, for anyone who hasn't read it, uh, the Pulitzer winning account of of the rise of Al Qaeda, traced all the way back to Egypt in in the 1950s 1960s. Um, just an absolutely phenomenal book that. Um, that I've read probably five times and, and can never get enough of. His reporting is just otherworldly. Uh, secondly, I would probably say uh, War by Sebastian Younger, uh, who basically was embedded uh, with some special forces at this outpost uh, forward operating base in Afghanistan. And he writes this story from the inside of that base and going out on these missions with, um, with these special forces. And, and that book, the reporting and the level of detail and just the sort of the really gritty way he reports it, it, it was just splendid. Uh, so that's another book I, I love. And third, since I'm a total sports junkie and probably should have been smart enough to pursue a career in sports writing instead of politics, I would probably say Moneyball uh, for some of those same reasons. I just think Michael Lewis did a, did a sensational job with his reporting and sort of taking readers inside of a world that they didn't really know existed and, and writing it in a way that it didn't feel like like homework. Uh, there was just this really seamless narrative format that he used that I that I have tried to emulate in my own work. So I would say those three books are uh, you know, at the top of my bookshelf. Tim Alberta, the book is American Carnage. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you to Tim for being here. Uh, thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. 
Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.